listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please, dear Bibles, let's turn together to Ezra chapter 2. And so we're going to read from Ezra chapter 2 and just highlight a selection of the verse in the chapter, beginning here in the verse number 1, Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judea, every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, and Jeshua, Nehemiah, and Sariah, Ariah, Mordecai, Milshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, Bahana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then follows a listing of the children uh, according to their families. And then later on, according to their uh, place. And then you have a reference to, uh, again, the, the priests in verse 36 and the Levites in verse uh, 40 and following. And then we'll pick up the reading again here down in the verse number 61. And the children of the priests, the children of Abiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Giladite, and was called after their name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. And the Tirjatha said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score, besides their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,337, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,620. And some of the chief of the fathers when they came to the house of the Lord, which is Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work threescore and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pounds of silver and one hundred priest's garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Amen. May God be pleased again to encourage us in his word uh, tonight. I had to smile when I was reading one book I have on the, uh, this work of Ezra, and they put it this way. One question many have is whether we can really read out such a passage in church. Won't it take too long? Won't the names be too hard to pronounce? Reading Ezra Two word for word of numbers spelled out takes only about five minutes, says this author. This is time well spent in my view, not least because it shows our reverence for all of Scripture. Well, I have chosen uh, not to read the entire chapter, as I said, because uh, this was out on the radio ministry of our church. But that choice not to read is not due to any lack of reverence for the passage, 
or for others like it, things like extended genealogies. We do believe and affirm again tonight that all scripture is inspired, breathed out of God and is profitable. We affirm that. We say amen to that again this evening. But it does take some thought and time to consider what are the benefits gleaned from a portion of scripture such as Ezra 2. And to glean those benefits is probably helpful to ask some prior questions. Why was this chapter written? What help was it to future generations? Even take those people two or three generations after the return and they're reading the account of Ezra. In what way does it minister and help them? Well, again, in answering the questions, why was it written and how is it helpful? It is again important to ask, well, what actually is it? What is this chapter? What does it consist of in terms of uh, revelation from the Lord? And when asking that question, you ask that question, what is it? With a mindset to why is it written and what help does it give? Well, well, what is it? Well, it's a list of names, essentially more than that, but it's a list of names of the exiles who returned to rebuild the temple. It's divided into different sections according to family name, geographical location, and temple jobs. There are those three sections in the organization of the chapter. There's then the account of some when they arrive, they give these generous offerings to pay for the rebuilding of the temple, and then they disperse to settle in their own cities. We have all that detail in this chapter. But beyond all that, we should not miss the point that chapter 2 links closely to Ezra chapter 1, particularly verse number 5. Ezra 1 verse 5 reads, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And so what you're seeing here really is, these are the people the Lord has moved. These are the people whose hearts the Lord has stirred up to obey his will and to perform the function given to them in the rebuilding of the temple. And so, yes, it is. It is a list. But if I could ask the question again, well, what is it really? Let me answer that question in three different ways. It's a list of names, but first of all, it is a list of the faithful. It's a list of those who were faithful and obedient to the Lord Again, I've noticed it's a categorized list already. And I'm not going to give you all the, the details of the categories. And there's some interesting features regarding the numbers and, uh, and different things. And again, I, I commend, if you want to read more about that, uh, read Matthew Henry. Certainly he makes some very important and helpful points uh, regarding the numbers and some of the details of this chapter. What we do see, just in summary form, is we see verse number two more than likely highlights various leaders Again, Zerubbabel is the chief of this list, and uh, he is the one who really leads the, the first return of the captives back to their promised land. And again, there are various ideas regarding the other people mentioned. Jeshua is a reference to Joshua, uh, the high priest, not, not Joshua, the son of Nun, of course, of previous uh, biblical history, but rather Joshua, uh, the high priest, referred to in other parts of the word of God. 
Other uh, authorities then give different ideas regarding some of the others. Again, there's speculation regarding the name Nehemiah here and also Mordecai. Are they the same as individuals referred to perhaps in Esther or in the book that bears Nehemiah's name? And there are different ideas. People have different views uh, on the matter. Again, there are challenges regarding the dates, uh, if they are the same individuals as the other books. But it is possible. Let me read to the comments of Henry. It says this, Zerubbabel and Jeshua were there, Moses and Aaron. Uh, they're the chief priests and the chief prince. Nehemiah and Mordecai are mentioned here. Some think not the same with the famous men we meet with hereafter. Probably they were the same, but afterwards returned to court for the service of their country. And so, Henry, maybe they are the same. And then they come in this first wave, and then they return back to, to Babylon. And then, of course, we know Nehemiah leads the later return for the rebuilding of the walls. But again, be it as it may, we have this listing of the leaders. And again, it is the will of God. We should note this. It is the will of God to appoint individuals to lead the people. That is God's will. It was true in the times of, uh, of the elders of Moses' day. It was true in the times of the apostles. And here it is true here also. God appoints some to lead the work of God. And again, it's part and parcel of God's good government and wise government of his people. And we've got to be careful. Uh, again, that the people of God do not assume a kind of a, a democratic spirit without submitting to godly leadership. And it's vital that those who lead must do so in a godly manner. But having said that, then the list continues. Verse 3 through 20 gives a list and numbers of the people according to their families. And then you'll notice a change. Down in verse number 20, you have the children of Gibar. 90 and 5. And then verse 21, you have the children of Bethlehem. And so it's now a change. And that the change is from having listed them according to their families, they're now listed according to place. Again, that's not insignificant. Again, I'm going to borrow somebody else and their comments on this, and they say this such a split is not unexpected. In earlier times, every family had a portion of the promised land as an inheritance which was passed down the generations. Families were identified by the land they possessed. That was how it was initially. We know that they go into the promised land and they're, they're all allocated a portion or a lot in the land and the, the families in the land are identified. But he continues, But as Judah was attacked again and again before the exile, lands were lost and the country was reduced in size. And because of this, some of the exile families were identified by family name rather than by their hometown or area. Some could still be identified by land, others by their family name. And why did I mention this? To make the point that no one was left out. The numbering of people here is a numbering with an attempt to, to say, well, this is the people that came according to their place. Now, if you look at numbers and do the math closely, the numbers of those who are explicitly listed differs from those who are then in the final number later on in the chapter. And the disparity there more than likely is a reference to those who could not prove their genealogy. And there was this issue, well, are you really part? And so what you have here are those who could prove their heritage and their, their genealogy. So you've got the families, you've got the places. Then 36 and following, you have the list of the temple workers, beginning the priests and Levites and others, the singers. They're all listed there as the temple workers. 
Now that's just, that's what it is. It's a list. But what does that actually mean? Why give this list? Well, first of all, this list serves as an encouragement. It's an encouragement to future generations. These are people who were obedient to God despite the cost. They were brave and bold in doing the will of God. And we know from other parts, there were those who stayed in Babylon and did not decide to return. And there are rebukes and counsel given to them for their lack of willingness to do the Lord's will. And so this this first cohort of those who return are remarkable for their boldness and for their courage. Remember, in the times of, of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah prophesies and writes a letter to the exiles, in Jeremiah 29, he tells the exiles to seek the peace of their cities, to marry, to build houses, to plant vineyards. They were encouraged to settle in Babylon for that time. And so to leave Babylon and return to a broken and war-torn area in rubble and in debris was a step of boldness and courage for the Lord. This was no small thing. It's not a case of you're going back to a land flowing with milk and honey. That wasn't the case. That's true of the land. But the land was marked by destruction and devastation through the wars and through the captivity that had resulted as the Babylonians had come and taken over the land. And so for them to go back was, as we may well see in Psalm 126, they were to go and sow in tears. If Psalm 126 refers to the post-exilic people, they were to go and sow in tears. Yes, if they did that, they'd reap with joy, but they were to go and sow, though it was difficult. And so you're seeing here an account of those who are bold and courageous in obeying the Lord. And you know what encourages me? God sees them, God notes them, God records them, and God remembers them. They are marked as a people who obeyed the Lord. And you think of the language of Hebrews chapter 6, that God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. And so what you see here really is a, is a list of those who are carefully recorded, carefully organized. Even the, the places that are mentioned are not random and haphazard. You can trace the points of a compass and see the places mentioned here. This is a very deliberate, a very organized, a particular list that God is marking. These are my people. I've stirred them up. I've worked in their hearts. And they've heard my call in their lives and they've done the will of God and none's left out and none's forgotten. And that ought to encourage us. That encourage us regarding the Lord whom we serve, the same God, the same yesterday, today and forever is the God whom we serve. And he is not blind to your labor of love. He is not forgetful of your works of righteousness. He sees you. You think of the, the language of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. You pray in secret and God sees that. You, you give in secret and you fast in secret and, and God sees that. And he who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so do not strive for the praise and approval of man. Live your life for the praise and approval of God. And do your works of righteousness, if you like. Though no one sees you and no one commends you, yet the Lord sees and the Lord marks and the Lord commends. So be faithful. That's the point of this. It's an encouragement to those people who are coming after this generation. Look, the Lord marks these people. It's an encouragement. But it's also certainly a word of exhortation. 
We are to note their obedience and to note their sacrifice. This is what is true of those whom the Lord has moved. The obvious question is, is this true of me? If I see this list of people, it serves like a Hebrews chapter 11 type of passage, exhorting us to, to greater courage and greater faithfulness, not to draw back, but to press on, to strive against sin and to strive against the world. It's, a, it's an encouragement for us to be bold. If they can do this, then I can boldly serve with the Lord's help. It's an exhortation to us. You sometimes ask yourself the question, if I was living in their days, would I be in this list? Would I have led my family back to the land in such a day? Or would I have fallen back? Would I have been comfortable in ease in Babylon? I've got my nice house, my nice vineyard. I'm not prepared to sacrifice anything to serve God. I want to have God, yes, but I want my comfort as well. Where are we in terms of our obedience to God? Are we prepared to do what it takes to be faithful to the Lord no matter the potential costs. So these are passages that give us a list of faithful people and by that way they exhort us and they encourage us. But it's also a passage that again proves a link. There's a link in this passage between the time prior to the exile and now this post-exile group of people. And it's a link between the house of David and the post-exilic people. You see, here I want to draw your attention back to verse number two, and in particular, this man's rubble. He is the chief, he's the, the prince of the people at this time. Zerubbabel in Ezra 2 is mentioned first, and then Ezra 3, verse 2, we have this additional detail regarding Zerubbabel. It refers to Jeshua, the son of Josedach, he's the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Why, why is that important? Because when Matthew highlights that Jesus Christ is the son of David, he mentions in Matthew 1 verse 12, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. These are men in the lineage of the Messiah. The captivity has not broken God's covenantal promises. The people are gone. Where's the throne of David now? We're in captivity. But in all of that, it is merely an interlude in the purposes of God. And God's covenantal promises will not fail to come to pass. And we're being shown that again. God still has a purpose for his people. And he's still going to bring Messiah upon the throne of David. That link is vitally important and is an encouragement to us. Christ will come. We look back, Christ has come. We, we see that link. And as we look back and review biblical history, we are reminded and encouraged that God is faithful. He will always keep his promises. And though at times there are seasons when the church of Christ seems to be in such turmoil... Yet God's promises are not broken by adverse circumstances. Adverse circumstances cannot interrupt the purpose of God or stop God doing his will. And so if you were living in the 1400s, at the close of the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, and you're wondering to yourself, where is the work of God in the church? You're a, you're a Wycliffe. 
Or you're a John Huss and you're wondering, where is the work of God? Well, the work of God was still continuing in and through those individuals. And it was going to fan into a great flame in the Reformation. And we're going to see the word of God going forward in those days. But prior to that, a faithful man may have wondered, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And so we ask ourselves that question in our day. Where is God in our day? Well, God is still working out his promises. So it is certainly a list of the faithful. It is a demonstration of the link, a link in the covenant of God. And then thirdly, it is a lesson on worship. And every generation needs to get this. You see, innovation in worshiping God is as old as Cain. And so when you come to the end of Ezra chapter 2, you have some important language regarding worship. You certainly have a lesson regarding the priority of worship in the lives of God's people. The reason for the return was to rebuild the temple. And later on, they forget and they neglect their work. And you look across to Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see a reference to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And when you read their prophecies, Haggai and Zechariah, you're, you're reading language where they, they come and they rebuke and they stir up people. Is it time for you to live in sealed houses and the temple of God is going to ruins? They started the work, but they forgot the work. And Haggai comes and rebukes them and exhorts them. And so it's a reminder to us again that they're, they're returning to the land to rebuild the temple. And so when the people are listed here, it says, interesting. When the people and the workers are listed, there is no particular reference made to those who are the builders. Now they're, they're included in the company. But the particular people here mentioned are the temple workers. So the building project is not so much about the foundations and the formation of the building but the function the building is important but worship is the key and it comes back to the question again is that for us is worshiping the lord is it a priority the key priority in our lives when we come to make decisions decisions about work or location or all of those various important things in life, does the worship of God come in first place? Young people, when you make decisions going forward, make sure the worship of God comes first. Where will I worship God on the Lord's Day? If I live here or there, where can I faithfully worship my God? You see, we don't want to be at the point where we value external church life without there being that priority of true internal devotion to God. And so the priority of worship is certainly seen in the generosity of the giving of the Lord's work. Well, we see that at the end of the passage. They're, they're giving all of this money above and beyond the giving of Cyrus. When you get to chapter 6 as will, you'll see Cyrus substantially supports the building of the temple. But here they're, they're giving beyond and above all that. Great amounts of gold and silver and the garments for the work of God. These people, they're committed to the worship of God. It's a lesson and a rebuke to us. There's also then not only the priority of God's worship, but the purity of God's worship. There is this matter, verse 59 and following, of the matter of genealogy. In verse 59 and 60, it's certainly true for the people in general. And there were those, and again, there are various reasons given, that they could not find their genealogical record Verse number 62, they sought their register among those that reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. 
And what's significant there is though they could not find, find their genealogy, they were therefore prohibited from serving in the priesthood. It was vitally important that there was a lineage of those who were Levites, that they were true Levites, they were true the sons of Aaron, and they could prove that. And they didn't serve. And it's like a lesson to us again at this point, that when it comes to the worship of God, we must not be pragmatic. We must not take a spirit, well, we need somebody to serve, and well, we should be pragmatic about this and make it work. And you get that spirit so often in times when it comes to female preachers. The idea is, well, there's, there's no good man to do the work, so surely a woman should preach therefore. And you get that pragmatic spirit that comes into the worship of God. We must not succumb to that. It must be those who make sure we do things correctly. And so their, their prohibition was not permanent. There was the, the use of the Urim and Thummim, which would, would give the will of God, and they could then be established according to that and prove their genealogy that way. But the point for us again tonight is very simple. Worship is a priority, but it must be done in purity. We are not allowed and permitted to be innovative in worship. We must worship only as God has commanded. In the form, in the content of our worship, it must be according to God's word. And so it governs what we sing. It governs how we sing. It governs what we read and how we pray and how we preach and all of those things. How we even uh, conduct the, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of these things are governed by the scriptures. It's a lesson here. It's a practical lesson. We're looking back and God has, he has put these things in, in scriptural form that we understand the significance of this. God values, sees and records the names of those who faithfully serve him according to his grace. And as they return, they do so fulfilling God's covenant of purposes. And as they do so, they show us a lesson regarding what it is to worship the one true and living God. And so this is not a dull and lengthy and dreary portion of God's word. This is rich and full of biblical instruction for us again tonight. We value the scriptures. All the scriptures are beneficial to our souls. And let's take the benefit from this one again this evening. May it be good to our souls and encourage us to be faithful in the Lord's work in these days for the glory and honour of Christ's name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.